Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the eighth edition of the Hidden Figures podcast. Um, today, I'm very delighted to have a guest, Yvonne Roden. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's correct. Yvonne Roden here. Um, and I've also got two of my friends with me, um, OJ and Eva, who might contribute, might not. Well, I guess it depends how the conversation goes. Um, but yeah, so Yvonne is a... Um, first off, it's my understanding, Yvonne has an MBE for her work working um, in the police force. Um, worked in the police force for over 20 or 30 years, I think. Over 30 years. Over 30 years. Um, and is now a, a netball coach um, for England. So if you don't mind, if you could just quickly over like a maybe five minutes or so, just give us a quick uh, or brief outline of your career to date and, 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 and that sort of thing. And then we will kind of start diving into who you are. Okay, okay. Um... My background is Jamaican. My parents both came from Jamaica in the late 50s, early 60s. Okay. And I'm one of three daughters born here, but one of nine siblings in oh, Jamaica. That's a lot of you. <laughs> um, my, my career is somewhat not an accident in that our two older brothers were both police officers in Jamaica. So it's a little bit of a kind of family mm-hmm. sort of trait, mine being the last, the youngest. Um... So I was born in North London, not far from the Emirates Stadium. So some would say I was been born a Guna. <laughs> um, I went to school in Tower Hamlets in the 60s, in the early 60s, 70s. Um, and my experiences then as kind of a, a youngster of five, six, seven are what really kind of shaped my life. Um, and, and my career going forward in the um, in my primary school in East London, I was one of three black black children at the mm. school, um, and that's not including when my sisters followed on after me. So mm. that sense of being the only one in the village type of thing yeah. started at a very young age, yeah. um, and it kind of followed me through. Probably when I got to secondary school, that's when I actually met and mixed with lots more girls that looked like me. I went to an all-girls school and there mm. were kids that looked like me then. So, okay. you know, it was it was quite comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to school in Hackney. And I th- it's fair to say that the relationship between the police and the black community um, was at one of the all-time lows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there have been various riots, um Certainly the Tottenham riots had taken place, uh, the shooting of Sherry Gross, um, uh, the death of Keith Blaylock, all of these things immediately preceded my um, entry into the police service. And mm-hmm. some might say that was somewhat of a risky career. Yeah, definitely want to ask at you that time. about that, but we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> but, um, you know, my, my parents, and particularly my mum, has been a massive influence in my life. Mm-hmm. And she was always of the opinion that if you want to change something, if you want to change a system, you can't just stand outside and shout about it. Mm. You've got to get in there and do something different. So, mm. you know, she was very supportive of my entry into the police service. Mm-hmm. And um, there it was in the mid-1980s. Um, a young Yvonne Roden turned up at Hendon Police College and went on oh, the yeah. ride of her life for 30 years. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just to take things back then, you, you mentioned your parents are from Jamaica. Um, I guess 
who were they in Jamaica? What was what what was life for them in Jamaica, and what what caused them to come over here to start a life over here? I think my parents were like many parents, many people from the Caribbean, from Africa, from Asia, mm. who came to answer the call to the mother mm -hmm. country, rebuilding the country after the war, seeking better opportunities mm. for their families. Um, my parents left behind my siblings in order to, you know, um, you know, discover this new life in a country mm. where they thought they'd be welcomed with open arms. Um, they left everything behind. They left my my older siblings behind, and like a lot of people of their generation, you know, the plan was five years and then we'll go back. Mm. Well, that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of other people, yeah. but. Um, that was it. It was about better opportunities mm. um, post kind of Second World War and 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 the the, the country becoming more industrialised. It was about getting a better life for their kids mm. and better than they had. Both my parents came from rural parts of Jamaica. Okay. Um, neither one of them went beyond sort of high school education. They never went to university or college. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly my mum, who had a real thirst for knowledge, but she was mm. one of the older siblings and there are things that people yeah, had to do. Yeah. And so, therefore, she had to give up her dreams in order to uh, facilitate it for her younger siblings. Um, but she always had a thirst for knowledge. She wanted her children to have that opportunity. And so that was some of the reasons why she came and my dad was the same. Mm, got me. And then, so, obviously, you said you grew up or you were born in that Highbury area. Um, Tower Hamlets, Hackney, these are all areas now. And I gather that you said in primary school you were one of three, but these are all areas now that are highly multicultural, a lot of ethnic minorities. They're also places that a lot of ethnic minorities came to in that time. What was it like, kind of, what was London like for a young black girl at that time? What was, what was life like? Um, it was interesting. We lived in Bethnal Green and we lived very close to Brick Lane. Mm -hmm. And Brick Lane was quite a... It had a controversial history anyway in that it always, like you say, it always welcomed immigrants from the Jewish community, first of all, yeah. and then from the Bengali community. I mean, it's very multicultural now. There's a lot of uh, development gone into mm -hmm. uh, the area. And, you know, perhaps a lot of the people that traditionally lived in Bethnal Green and Tower Hamlets, places like that, have now moved on. And it looks very, very different now. But... As sort of a young girl, as a teenager, my memories of living in that area were things like having to navigate your way past uh, the National Front, which were the okay, precursors yeah. to the British National Party. Yeah. And they would stand at the top of Brick Lane every Sunday, spouting their propaganda, oh, wow. selling their newspapers, mm. and, you know, on our way to church or mm. to a friend or to relatives... We'd have to negotiate that on a wow. Sunday, which was quite difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, it had been in the 70s. It had been um, a flashpoint area for anti-racism. You know, hopefully you've heard about uh, the activist Blair Peach and, and what had happened to him in that area as well, that he died as a result of um, trying to protest against uh, the racist British National Party and people oh, wow. like that. So I grew up in that kind of area <laughs> at that time. Yeah. So it's very different now. Now yeah. that area is welcoming and open arms to lots mm. of different communities. Mm. But at the time, it wasn't. It was 
very, very difficult, very challenging. And what about within the community? What was the so within the Caribbean community or the I, I don't I don't know what the world was like then. Yeah. Was, was was did you feel like there was a strong Caribbean community? Was it like a black community? Was it something that was shared with the Asian people like Bengalis and Pakistani people? What was the quote unquote community? I think we were quite separate entities then. I think yeah. you, you know your generations now I think are very much more fluid yeah. uh, and integrated. But I think we're very much very separated communities. The mm. Asian community from the Black Caribbean, the African Caribbean community. Um, you know, the Caribbean communities, you, you know, one of the traditions of a weekend was, you know, um, parents would take you to another family member or another friend from back home. You'd go mm. to their Sunday, their house on a Sunday, and you spend time together. Mm. And that's how the, the, the community kind of stayed together. Yeah. We would visit each other's houses. And, and, and so that was a kind of tradition that... that that we used to have that's died out now, I think a mm. little bit. That there there was much more of a community feel, I think, than there was than there is now in mm. terms of that intergenerational kind of mix. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know there were things. You know there was a big thing about respecting older people. Um, and kind of, it was a little bit kind of Victorian. It's a little bit children should be seen, not heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in any. Caribbean family um, of my generation will tell you about you'd go to a living room and there was a living room that you could never go into because mm-hmm. it was full of doilies and glasses and yeah, cupboards yeah. and ornaments and that was the best front room and you couldn't go yeah. in there and won't yeah. be tired if you did. <laughs> um, so it was it was that kind of... But, but it was one where, you know, you knew lots of different people older people not just your own own age group from the community Mm. and and I think that's one of the significant changes I think now um that we were more or less kind of you know you knew the areas where African Caribbean live they Mm. were in Hackney and Dalston and State Newington they were in Brixton they were in Peckham Mm. you know they were here in West London in Halston but not really much in between between yeah it was like pockets of communities yeah yeah so um if you don't mind me asking as well, obviously a lot of people, but a lot of people came back that this call to home, as you called it, um, and it wasn't what they were expecting, um, and a lot of families and individuals found themselves almost disenfranchised and kind of somewhat removed from the quote unquote establishment, um, and a lot of people kind of went into illegal activities, for want of a better term, for to to to, to kind of get by how much of that was as in growing up was that something that you saw or something that was was exposed to you or were there a lot of professionals were there a lot of people doing different types of jobs or, or was it kind of what's almost painted today I think it was that you know I, I don't personally have a kind of experience of people who made different choices in order to mm. survive but I understand that mm. that's what happens yeah. around me whether I was conscious of it or yeah. not um, I think there are a lot of people who came here that were in their home countries they were skilled they were mm. seamstresses they were this they were that and, that and they came here and they had to make do mm-hmm. um, my mother for example was quite a skilled seamstress mm. but what she tells me about the jobs that she was able to get as opposed mm. to choose yeah. 
you know, they didn't use her skills, that mm. it was at the lowest of the low. It was almost like a test of her endurance mm. um, in that she'd be given the worst jobs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but she had mouths to feed both here and Jamaica. And Jamaica so her yeah. and my dad did the best that they could with the opportunities that were given to them opposed to what they chose. I mean, I think that's a stark difference to my generation and your generation is that we've been able to choose. To choose what we want to do. Uh, They weren't, they they were in survival mode Mm. and that's what I do recognise. And Mm. having conversations with my mum now who's like in her late 80s now and she talks about, sometimes she comes out with things that even I'm still stunned at now and I'm in my mid-50s and she tells us about, for example, she talked about when she took us to school, or me to school, at my primary school, none of the other mothers would talk to my mum for a number of months. Mm. It took quite that, some time, time before yeah. they thawed out and Crazy. And, and spoke to her. You know, and all she would do was just right? trying yeah. to... Just be a friendly mum, yeah. Just be a friendly mum. Yeah. You know, I can't even imagine that happening today. Yeah. But those are the things that... that she went through, my dad went through, in order to make a give us of... those opportunities yeah. and make a life for us. So, for me, I think the people that have gone before us, we can't thank them enough. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's the purpose of this podcast yeah. to some extent. Hear those stories. Um, and so, obviously, you mentioned you had two older brothers who were in the police force back in Jamaica. What 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 drove them to join the police force there? Again, it was a little bit about. You know, and, and having had a very recent conversation with my, one of my brothers who now lives in Canada mm. and talked about why they joined the police service and it was about getting out. They lived in rural Jamaica, where, up in the mountains, where opportunities were very scarce. Mm. But they saw the police force as a way out. Yeah. A way out, a way forward. Yeah. Um, and so for them, it wasn't necessarily a lifelong ambition. Mm. It was, I want to get Just out. It's an opportunity, basically. It's yeah. an opportunity. I want to get out. It's a steady job. It's got good pay. Mm. There, you know, there are opportunities for promotion. That you know, there are there is opportunity to go further and and to develop, mm. you know, knowledge and experience. And so, for them, that's what it was about. Yeah. Um, I think I had a different experience. Yeah, I was about to ask about that. Yeah, yeah I had a different obviously experience. Obviously, you mentioned, you mentioned a lot of the context at the time in terms of the kind of race relations between the police and the black community. Um, you're in Haggerston. Um, obviously, I'm, I wasn't around in the 50s, 60s. I know what Haggerston's like now. Um, I can just imagine in, in that sort of climate, Almost how or why why is it that yeah I, I gather your brothers are police officers way way on the other side of the world in Jamaica mm-hmm. what is it that you're saying right in London I want to take on this opportunity and do the same thing I I think I was I was a little bit stubborn a little bit hot headed as well okay, yeah. I'm not gonna lie I was <laughs> a little bit of a handful when I was younger at okay. school um, but I. I no I just wanted to do something out of the ordinary I didn't mm. want to go and work for a bank. I didn't want to be a secretary. I knew that I wanted to do something. Mm. And I knew it wasn't that. But I didn't actually kind of know what it was. And Mm. then they actually had a careers fair at my school. Mm -hmm. And I met a police officer. And not a black police officer, a white police officer, actually. Mm. And she was at Mounted Branch. And she turned up at the school on her horse, Mm. looking immaculate (laughs) and... 
I remember her name to this day, Kim Bryan. Mm. And I remember sitting down and talking to her and just being like mesmerised by um, this look. Mm. She looked professional and people respected her. And, you know, she talked about the police service and what it could offer. And and there were probably... I was probably her only kind of customer that day. Yeah. But I got it was probably an opportunity for me to get some real time and talk to her and you know I mulled it over and I talked it over and I remember going to my head of year um and I'm really good at names and her name was Anne Parker and yeah. I always remember I went sure I said I know what I'm going to do I want to be a police officer mm. and I remember a word she said to me oh no dear surely you'd want to be a traffic warden there's far less exams wow 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 so knowing me 16 mm. 17 year old me at that time was like well I'm going to show her yeah, yeah but yeah. in more colourful language yeah um, <laughs> but I, I'm I'm going to show her yeah that this is what I'm going to do mm. um and so that was it that was my path then that was what I was working towards yeah is joining the police service and I wanted to kind of prove a point and in fact when I came out of training school and I, and I came and I successfully got through the course my my posting as it were where I was going to be based was right on the ground where I went to school okay so it was one of the first things I did when did, I yeah. came back I came back to the school yeah. in full uniform okay okay and it shows sometimes these attitudes just don't change yeah. and I find it really frustrating that I hear parents saying the same things are happening to their kids at school, black kids at their school. Mm. And I came back to the school, and the deputy head, um, she said to me, oh, Miss Roden, it's a, bit, it's a bit like poacher turned gamekeeper. Wow. I was like, okay. Wow. wow. This is a white woman, I'm assuming. This is a white yeah. woman, yeah. So, you know... That's crazy. But the sad thing is that this I've is had this same conversation yeah. with my nephew who is 42, who has a young son now going into secondary school, and he's had the same feedback from yeah. teachers at his son's school. So generations later, this thing's still, still being perpetuated. On. And so kind of in light of that, because obviously that's one thing I hated about secondary school myself. One of my friends here, OJ, he, he, he went secondary school with me as well, so he can relate. It was very much, I kind of felt like as the black person, you were labelled as criminal or as naughty or as troublesome or as angry or as whatever the case may be and both of us got in a lot of trouble in school a lot of trouble in school because of it um and in in that climate of kind of almost negative expectations for want of a better term um what what when you when you now decide to become a police officer aside from Aside from kind of those out, outside of the community, for one of a better term, what was it now like for people within the community? Who, so your, your cousins, your friends, people whose houses you've been round to and so on and so forth, especially given the climate and kind of race relations um, between the, the, the black community and the police force, you know, how do people almost accept you as someone saying that I want to go and join them? My family were incredibly supportive. Yeah. Because they knew how much it meant to me and and I wanted to do this. And yeah. they were only supportive. Um, there were mixed reactions from people outside my family. Um, 
I, I just remember walking through Hackney one day in full uniform and, you know, someone who's kind of probably the same age I am now or a little mm. bit older, a lady, and she came and she was just so happy. She was so proud oh, wow. to see me. Yeah. On the other hand, there were other reactions yeah. that weren't as supportive. You know, I'm not going to lie. There were yeah. people that questioned me, were outright, you know, you're a traitor, You've, yeah. you know, how can you do this? How'd that make you feel? Um, I kind of, re- kind of checked back then to my mum's words about it's easy to throw stones from outside, but mm. if you want to make some change, you have to get in there and you have to get in the eye of the storm. So is that always your intention, almost, in terms of going in there to, to change it from the inside out? No, I just wanted to be a police officer and I wanted to... I know it sounds cliche, yeah. but I wanted to help people. Yeah. I wanted to do something different with my life. I felt like I was doing something, even in a small way, mm. so that, you know... When I meet my maker, I can say, do you know what, I, I did, I tried. Yeah, yeah. I went out there and I tried. I didn't sit there and bemoan my situation. I went out and I contributed. And, yeah, um, yeah I, so for me, it was, it was a no-brainer, really. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of learned, uh, you know, I anticipated there's not going to be everybody, and particularly in the climate that I joined, I knew that not everybody from the black community was going to be happy or supportive. Mm. But you kind of had to ride that out mm. like, because you had to understand where they're coming from because I was part of that community as well as because yeah, when my so uniform I, was off, yeah, you, you, you just go it, back it, to it. it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. You know, you, you still get stopped by the police, yeah. by colleagues who don't know what you do for a living. They, yeah. You still get stopped. You still got some attitudes that weren't what they should be or they weren't as professional as they should be. Um, so just because... I was black and a police officer. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't dressed as a police officer 24 yeah, hours a day. Yeah. So the things that were happening to other black people in the community were still happening to me. So, so how, how would you feel about that, knowing that these are your colleagues? Like on a, it's, it, I was going to ask this question later, but yeah. nevertheless, kind of... Because these attitudes are still prevalent within, within um, the police force, but certainly I'm sure were a lot more prevalent back then. How are you dealing with that on a day-to-day basis, knowing that, yeah, within the confines of the wall, you're this person, you're Yvonne mm. Roden, the police officer, PC Roden, but mm. when you go home, you're, you go back to being one of the... One of the... One those of the, people yeah, one there. of those people, <laughs> like, one of the opposition, basically. Yeah. Um, and knowing full well that the, the ki- kinds of people that they viewers not just you but is also your friends your your brothers your 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 family your community mm. for a better term yeah it's it's it was r- difficult mm. i can't say every day that i went through the door of a police station it was sunshine and bows and roses mm. it was not um but i really felt strongly about standing up and being counted mm. And say so no matter how difficult it is, because I now I know now, and I had a sense of how difficult it was for my parents to come here, knowing, mm. hoping that it was a place where they'd be welcomed in their arms, and they found the exact opposite. But they stuck it out. Mm. They stuck it out, and they stood up, and they made this life for their children. Yeah. And you know, this yeah, was the least was, yeah. I can do. Okay, to, to take responsibility for 
when a young black person was stopped on the street, um, that I spoke to them professionally and with dignity, but I did my job. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as opposed to something else that was happening to the yeah. black community. You know, there were those who I understood that they had very strong feelings and were very anti-police in the light of the relationship between the police and the black community. Mm. And that I would have to deal with that face-to-face on the street. Mm. Mm. But that's part of what I was there for. Yeah. Particularly I felt like. that, like, maybe now... I mean, I've been on a, a few um, marches recently and things like that, and I think a lot of the time there ends up being a, a conversation at some point or some sort of chanting that happens between the people kind of against the police. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what your reaction to that has been over time and whether that's changed or how you how you feel when you see people from your community still kind of chanting against the police or still mm. having really very strong opinions against police officers to the extent that if mm. they know you're a police officer they won't talk to you they won't engage with shut you down, yeah. it's complete mm. shutdown like I have colleagues that are former police officers and I know that an immediate reaction from my peers will be oh how do you how do you deal with that knowing that he's part of that establishment? Yeah. So mm-hmm. how do you kind of react when you hear other people kind of continuously talking negative about a field that you you worked in? I, I think that what people have also got to understand is the black community that are within the police, that are police staff yeah. and that are police officers, yeah. that the things that happen to you out in the street, they are... You know, you're, you're, that's the community, and it's reflected yeah. within the community in the yeah. police service. So there are black people who have worked and you do work in the police service that have had very negative experiences with the police, yeah. And their work colleagues. So I absolutely hear what you're saying about police going out and and the relationship to, between the police even now mm-hmm. doesn't appear as if it's made any kind of progress in all that time. Mm. But I, I feel there are people like. Um, there are there are people like my very good friend Janet Hills, who is a black woman who's a detective sergeant who's the chair of the Black Police Association, who's chair of the National Black Police Association, who's in I there in the, the fight and she is extremely vocal. Mm. And Janet is one of a number of people throughout the Met's history in particular, because I was in the Met that has stood up and accounted. The Black Police Association, Association has been the voice yeah. of the black community within, within the, police the police service for a very, very long time, since our inception in 1990. So how does it... There have been people does... like Leroy Logan and Dave yeah, Michael, yeah. And, you know, and, and so many people, George Rogan and Bevan Powell, all of these people have been out there at the forefront and they have put their heads up in the power and then challenging from within. So how does it feel given that there's so much of a fight from within that there's so many people on the outside who are just like, as soon as they hear you're a police officer, it's like, don't want to use any language, but yeah, that, like, F the feds basically. like Because, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, just, just growing up, my whole... And this is... I, I probably didn't have my first interaction with the police till I was about 13, 14, which... It's still really young. It's funny, as I'm saying it, it's, it's, it's really young, but to me, it, it feels quite late. But even right from early, I kind of had this whole perception that 
don't talk to... And this isn't something that I got from my parents as such, but don't talk to police, they're the enemy. I remember, like, where I grew up, I grew up in Collingdale, um, in Graham Park, which is down the road from mm. where the police college was, and I remember the, the, the there used to be a police car that used to just patrol, mm. literally just patrol, sit at the top of my road for, for a long time, and it was kind of just a very us-versus-them mentality, which I feel like hasn't really gone away and so given all the kind of hard work done internally to try and change things from the outside from the inside out what's it like now like when you've got someone like myself who's gone from a good family good home parents don't give that give that kind of anti-police vibe but that's still what I end up feeling and being Mm. ingrained with I think a lot of it you know I think sometimes it's about fear Mm. That people don't understand the black community. They don't. They don't sometimes take the time mm. to interact with the black community. I, I would hazard a guess, and they can correct me if I'm wrong. But I would hazard a guess that most police officers don't live amongst the community that they work. Yeah, I. I, don't I always so. have. Yeah, I always have. Yeah, and that's important to remain grounded and be in touch with what's actually going on and mm. to understand the frustration and the anger mm. of the black community. Mm. Um, that this is not just something that's happened in five minutes, it's been yeah, decades. Building, building. Um, and that it continues is a source of frustration for me. Mm-hmm. That there's still, you know, it shouldn't... For me, I don't feel that it should be like this. I yeah. feel like, you know, uh, you know, I, I I retired four years ago, yeah. and it, it, I'd have hoped that we'd have made some strides. Yeah. But when I speak to young black people, particularly the young black men in my family, yeah, it would seem that it hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. The things that keep them keep them safe that kind of keep them moving are the things that I advise them to do if ever they get stopped by the police. Yeah. Um, but it shouldn't have to be that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to advise them in yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Which is ridiculous that like 30 odd years later this is still this is still being perpetuated. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, but I do think this I still feel though there's something about us being in there and changing things. Like definitely. Do you I, think there's a or what do you think the role is of the black community that doesn't exist within policing that can help? Because obviously when you're kind of sitting on a more victim side, you're, you are going to, I would imagine, be more apprehensive until the other person shows themselves to improve the way that they behave towards you. Mm. You're going to kind of maintain that hostility against them. But do you have, I'd, you might not have any opinion of like the black community having, being able to do something to also help alleviate the ameliorate the situation or I think dialogue is really key it's like understanding actually having a conversation and understanding it mm-hmm. is when a young black man sits opposite a police officer and and for the most part these confrontations and again I stand to be corrected have been between white police officers mm-hmm. and young black men is actually having a conversation not adversarial, but sitting there saying, okay, right, I got stopped last week and this officer behaved like this, 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 and he said this, and he asked, you know, have the opportunity to be able to ask and say, why do your colleagues behave like this? 
But you, you um, don't feel empowered to do that though. Like, I can, well, I can exactly, think of and that's what I'm saying. That until that, until that conversation actually, that, that actually happens, yeah. I think th- there's always going to be that gulf. There's always been that huge yeah, chasm yeah. until that conversation happens. happens. You know, what is it that you, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm able to express myself, but what what is it that, as a white police officer, scares you about a young yeah. black man, or what is it that makes you apprehensive? Yeah. What What is it, and have that kind of almost Chatham House rules, no house bars yeah, conversation. conversation. Yeah. But while there's yeah. still anger, misconception, no dialogue. Yeah. The status quo builds, will yeah. be perpetuated. Definitely. Um, so yeah, to take it back, one of the questions I wanted mm. to ask was, when you've now joined the police force, obviously it's a very male environment and it's a very white male environment as well. Um, and with the sort of ongoing stereotypes, you know, like this, this is a different time to now as well. Um, what was it like being one of the few, one of the only black women now joining this police force? Like I said, it's full of men. And then also full of white men. So you, so you're not. So you're different in terms of being a woman, and then you're different also in terms of being a black woman. What what was it like navigating that space? Um, <laughs> I I learned to stand up and hold my own. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you get pigeonholed. Yeah. A little bit. So it was. You know, you, you don't, you know, she's drawn a line in the sand and you don't cross it. Mm. I remember having a confrontation with uh, 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 another um, police constable candidate when I was at training school and he was white and I was black and there was this confrontation. It wasn't physical, it was verbal and I stood my ground. Mm. And a lot of people who met me then sort of said, you know, that was the line in the sand that was drawn. Mm. and people didn't mess with me at all yeah. and I was quite happy to have that reputation yeah do, do you feel like that ever was a hindrance somewhat like in terms no, of do, no. do you think people you know that the, the angry black woman stereotype do you think that might have um I don't want to say played into that but were, were you ever worried about that were you ever worried about how obviously the, the thing the thing about the police force is that it's it's the only employer in the in in the business, so like it's you can't you can't be a police officer elsewhere, oh, <laughs> yeah. and so like <laughs> whatever you do, however you act, however you operate, kind of has a has an impact on your employment yeah. um, um, opportunities and perspectives. Was that ever anything that 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 worried or concerned you, or not 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 so much? Well, I think it was it was kind of the the, the start of the tanker turning, as it were, mm. in the Met. Um, and there have been a number of significant things that had happened, you know, riots and what have you, um, that are well documented. Um, but I was, never, I was never worried about that particular reputation because it helped me to get on with my job mm-hmm. every day because I couldn't actually invest a lot of time, in my mind, I couldn't invest a lot of time in getting into these beefs with yeah, different. police officers who just uh, the brains of a rocking horse yeah <laughs> i was there to do my job <laughs> i was there to do my job yeah i was there to achieve certain things i've not got time for you 
Mm. If you want to be petty, that's your business. Mm. If you want to cross me, that's another business. And mm. I'll take time out to deal with that and then I'll <laughs> get on with my job. Yeah. So if you want to carry on. So for example, I, there was a particular police officer who was who took it upon himself to try and bully me. Mm. So it took the form of... Um, we used to have these little notepads that we got given to each other, uh, given to you, and to write notes and stuff. And I would find... You'd have a correspondence tray, so a big set of trays in the hallway, and your shoulder number was on it. And I would come back and I would find uh, a piece of this notepad. And they'd, you remember the little game Hangman? Yeah. What they'd done, drawn a hangman, but they'd stuck a face of a black man on it and leave it in my tray. Or I would have that's, copies. That's a bit mad. <laughs> that's a bit mad. Copies of uh, the Bulldog, which is the British National Party yeah. newspaper, left Green in my yellow. correspondence tray. But one, whenever I, I remember that after a little while, um, the, the issue got resolved. I identified who it was. Yeah. There was a a moment when I. Showed him who I was. Yeah. Um, and I, it got referred to one of the senior officers at the station. And they yeah. said to me, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us we could have helped you? And I said, because it need help. Yeah. I dealt with it myself. Had I gone running to a senior officer, that would have stirred up. A ho- and I needed to be able to say, I can deal with this. Yeah. Um, and the senior officer said to me, you were born to be a detective. Because I can't believe how much of this stuff you collected. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and put together. And then put it all together, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, to my mind, but that incident became quite infamous. Yeah. At the station. and But it also drew that, literally, that, that metaphorical line, yeah, line yeah. in the sand. Because people then said, nah. That's not acceptable. It's, it's, she's not going to, she's not going to have that. You know, and from, you know, so I was dealing with the, the double jeopardy. Yeah. So not only the whole thing around race, but also as a woman. Yeah. You know, we would have this whole thing about on a night shift, um, someone would cook a meal and they kind of said to me, well, when are you cooking? Get like, cooking, uh, yeah. what? I'm just trying to flick through me contract and see where it says <laughs> that I've got to cook the whole <laughs> shift the meal. That's not happening. Yeah. So then I was labelled as stroppy. Where, where did you find camaraderie in this space yeah. like what it sounds like you're doing a lot of it and going through a lot of it on your own like were there women of whatever other whatever race there to support you were there men of the same race or not or there were actually there were i mean the, the bullies were like bullies anywhere whether at yeah. school or anywhere once you front them out they back off yeah they relax yeah but other people actually respect you for, for it. it yeah got you people respect you for it they say okay then Right, she's there, she's, she's real, let's mm. just get on with it. Um, and so there were people who were supportive, there were women who were supportive, and, you know, for women we, you know, we knew that there was some camaraderie in it, that we were all going the same thing, because, you know, if I look at it then, I think women made up something like 3% of the police service. Wow. Now it's more like, it's more like parity, it's more like 50%, something yeah. like 40-50%. So right then, those were the real yeah, days of harsh. You were really knocking <laughs> down two black, doors at the same time. to be yeah. a woman in the police service. It was like the trifecta. So, so in, in, in terms of being a woman in the police, office, um, police service, 
um, I was asking Eva about this recently, Eva and one of my other friends, Salome, who was yeah. on the podcast last week, about the whole kind of Me Too movement now and this, uh, the, the commonality of, of men in positions of power using their position of power to try and get sexual favours or whatever and kind of sexually harass, knowing that it, it it's, it's unlikely to be reported or it's unlikely to anything, there's never going to be any repercussions because of their position of power. Um, not necessarily for you to name names or, or, mm. or, or say individual, um, if, it, if it is the case, but was that was that environment something that, that you saw within the police office service or, or, or not really? I think... Because it's quite a hierarchical yeah, absolutely. Um, structure yeah. in the first place. So I can imagine that it kind of, it could potentially breed that kind of environment, but I'm, I'm just yeah. not sure. Um, I think that there were practices that, because I'd drawn in my, my line in the sand, yeah. never ever happened to me. Yeah. Never happened to me, but I'm aware that it happened to other colleagues, other yeah. female colleagues. Yeah. Um, there were practices then that if they happened now, someone would end up in prison. Yeah. Yeah. That were seen to be then as bonding and being part of the team, which were completely unacceptable. Mm, mm. And my line in the sand meant that I wasn't having any of that. So, you know, I was, I somewhat bypassed a lot of that. Mm. But I know that there were other colleagues that didn't. That, yeah. Yeah. That didn't. Now it, it wouldn't happen. It yeah. wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that a few years ago, um, uh, I went to a police conference, a national police conference in America, in Atlanta, and, and we went at, at the invite of black colleagues over in America, and we were in a um, a workshop talking about sexual harassment in the workplace, and this is prior to me too. Yeah. Um, and just being in this environment where there were male colleagues who just thought it was ridiculous that if you are show some sort of friendliness towards a female colleague and 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 by touching someone it wasn't you know it, it seemed ridiculous to them that, that, that it was it wasn't yeah. acceptable yeah you know the fact that they've also black colleagues kind of yeah. disappointed me as well yeah but you know that that's the point where I you know I then had to stand up and yeah. challenge. Yeah. Had to. Yeah. Um, you know the the area of policing that I've been passionate about almost since day one, and that has formed half of my career was working yeah. around combating sexual violence, yeah, combating yeah, yeah. domestic violence, violence um, against women, and violence general, against yeah. women and girls generally. So mm. it was never anything that I was gonna. Stand Let up pass and me have, by, yeah, not yeah, at definitely. all. Um, not at all. But I, you know, I, I think it's true, and perhaps what might have been seen as just becoming one of the team would now have serious, serious consequences. Mm, 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 definitely. Um, and um, go, going back to Eva's question about um, the. Uh, kind of networks or that that might have helped you at the time i understand that you were one of the founding members or part of the beginning of the network of black police officers um what was like what what brought you together i mean it, it sounds yeah. like you've but if you could just kind of 
say yeah, sure. what, what kind of helped to bring bring you together what what was your role within the police service and how did other people react to you I find very much that especially when I used to work in the city whenever I used to speak about um a black network or doing things for black people it was always you this responsive yeah yeah mm. roll, rolling eyes this is reverse racism why do you need something for yourself all that type of thing um I can imagine again in such a such a white dominated environment what what was the reaction to you guys and why did you feel the need to start in the first place well it was part of that kind of tanker turning around very 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 slowly yeah um, and it was around black police officers it focused on initially, but it was around the, the experience of black police officers in the Met in particular, mm. um, and later on the other sort of police services around the country followed suit. Um, but it really got going in 1990 um, when we had what we call the Bristol Seminars. They were basically... Any black officer was invited to go along to this series of seminars over a period of a couple of days and mm -hmm. talk about their experiences freely. Got and it was run by academics and, it, you know, it was all about finding out about our experiences. Mm -hmm. And that was a truly kind of extraordinary moment. It was being in a room full of police officers, like lots of black police officers together in a room and feeling that sense of unity like yeah. we're all in the same boat oh, together yeah, because you, you know by and large if you were a police officer you'd be lucky if you're at a station where there's another police officer at the station let alone on your shift mm. I was certainly the only one on my shift when I started and I was the only woman on my shift when mm. I started it's a lot it's a lot <laughs> so you know, you know, it was a lot. And there were other black women before me who, you know, I, I remember a colleague in the corresponding shift at Hackney and it was just amazing to see her. And then there was a black guy at the station as well. And it's mm. So, you know, you'd nod in acknowledgement. You'd yeah. walk along and yeah, yeah, it'd yeah. be something really... It's something we spoke about on the on the last episode as well. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 that nodding, nod. yeah. Yeah, the importance of acknowledgement of, that nod, yeah. of being in the same room. Yeah. And going to what we call operational feeding. So if there's a big event in London and you've got hundreds of thousands of police officers, everyone has to get fed. Mm. So you go to a central point where you probably see people you haven't seen from training school mm. or, or what have you, you haven't seen them on. Yeah. But mm -hmm. that was the thing, was suddenly seeing a black colleague and that nod. That nod, yeah. <laughs> and somehow you'd want to try and make your way round yeah. to have a conversation <laughs> with that person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and but the Bristol seminar was that magnified that yeah. everybody was black. And you were all together at the same and time. And we were all together. Yeah. And I guess for a lot of people it gave them that freedom to speak freely about their experiences. Mm. You know, there were um you know, you talk about founding members. I was one of the founding members as opposed to a a founder. But Got the you. likes Got of you. people like Leroy Logan, mm -hmm. Dave Michael, um, uh, you know, George Roden, all of those people. Is George Roden related to you? Not that we know of, okay. but we still, keep, <laughs> we still call each other cuz. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. But all of those people were all in 
one room. Yeah, it was yeah. really a powerful experience. Mm. And the only thing I can even relate it to is going to the National Black Police Association Conference in America mm. is being in a room with all our brothers and sisters from all around the country. Yeah. Everyone was black. Yeah. Everyone. The keynote speakers were black. The, the workshop facilitators yeah. were black. Everybody was bottom, black. Yeah. It was... Mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. in it, and I feel like my heart. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but 1990, that was what that time was like. And so, how how did your colleagues react to you? How how did the force react to this? Well, this a, a lot of people network? were nervous. Yeah. They wanted to know what had been said, <laughs> what we all did. What, did. You know, did we all sit there, <laughs> kind of going on about them all day long. Of they, they just did. were, you know, they were relentless with the questions about what happened, what happened, what happened. But it was a real watershed moment yeah. because out of that was born the Black Police Association and the first one in the country. Yeah. Um, from the Met Black Police Association, every other police Started service eventually over. had a Black Police Association, yeah. whether I had two officers or whether they had 200 officers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, and eventually that has become, there's a National Black Police Association with an executive, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, I mean, and Janet, who I've mentioned before, Janet yeah. Hills, it is, you know, an absolute trailblazer. The first female chair of the Black Police Association, the first, um, and I think the second black female chair of the National yeah. uh, Black Police Association. So, some real watershed, powerful moments. Yeah, yeah that have happened in the police services history. The Black Police Association, the Met Black Police Association, gave evidence at the McPherson Inquiry. I, I was going to get onto that, actually. Um, um, but I, the, and, you, you know, making yeah. that link between the black community and the police. Yeah. Um, and they were real and they were honest. Yeah. I mean, so, I, 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 spoke, I spoke to the um, founder, not the founder, the former CEO of the Stephen Lawrence Foundation um, about the McPherson inquiry and working because he he also is a um so just just for those who don't know the McPherson inquiry is the inquiry that came out of the um well the the inquiry that came out after Stephen Lawrence died um that was the first kind of paper or whatever acknowledgement of the establishment for want of a better term that 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 the police was institutionally racist um and was it was the first time there was kind of this recognition of the term institutional racism and 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 and, and what that might mean um but yes i spoke to him about it and he was saying you know he found that there were lots of officers who weren't racist at all um but at the same time there was just this kind of yeah environment of institutional racism i guess from your perspective what what was it like one now the spotlight so it's, it's something the black community's been saying forever clearly, since even before you joined the police force, um, and something that the white or non-black community has been generally quite ignorant of. Um, what's it now like where the kind of spotlight's now on the force, saying that, you know, th now it's a judge, a white judge saying the police force is institutionally racist. Um, I guess, one, what was it like, what was it like just as one of the black police officers now dealing with this kind of national spotlight that you guys are racist, as, as in you as a police force, not you as an mm -hmm. individual. Um, and then two, what was it like being part of the Black Caucus of police officers in terms of trying to change that environment based on 
what's now been said from the outside, but undoubtedly you've been saying for a long time. Mm. I mean, I think the... <laughs> ice cream fans doing a lot, man. <laughs> I know it's summer, but oh, we've got a podcast Rookie? going on, Maggie. <laughs> I do love the ice cream man, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, go on. Um, sorry, I've lost my thread there. Can you just repeat the, um, the point? You I, was, I was basically asking, like, what what was it like now that the first inquiries come out and said the police are institutionally racist, the spotlight's on you, both in terms of changing things from the inside out, but also in terms of now that, again, it's that heightened view of police officers, of which you are one, you are a black one, of course. Mm. I mean, I think the first thing was, I think the first response I felt overwhelmingly from a lot of my non-black colleagues were, well, I'm not racist. Of course. And yeah. not really Getting understanding the point that, it's, that yeah. it's about the institution, yeah. it was about the processes, the policies, yeah. the practices that yeah. were institutionally racist. Yeah. And I think some struggled to understand that and took it as a personal criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that set up kind of moments where instead of having dialogue and trying to understand, actually there are people that took it quite personally. personally. Yeah. And actually I'm not talking about you as an individual. Yeah, this is about the system. Yeah. The system yeah. And the way that it relates to the black community. Mm. This is what it's saying. So you need to understand that. Yeah. So there was a lot, there's a quite a bit of explaining. Yeah. Um, but it was a powerful movement for us because as a black police association, we had a hand in that inquiry. Mm-hmm. We were there to advise from mm. both perspectives as, as, as a black people officer, and as, as police officers. Person, yeah. And about the way that it reflects, you know, and what we as a black, as black police officers could do to bridge mm. that gap and try and bring the communities together. So how, so did, how did you it, feel when it actually came out? Because obviously, you you're just you're just saying what you think in terms of in the build up to it, but you don't actually know what's going to be published when it's actually published now. How was how, what was the reaction from from the black police officers? We welcomed it. Okay, we welcomed yeah. Yeah. the recommendations. Um, we welcomed what Lord McPherson had to say about mm. what needed to change. And I was, um, and that kind of took me on to the next part of my career, if you like. What mm. what then happened from there? I was I was based in North London at the time, and there was a lot of that kind of oh, what you know. I'm not racist. You know, I've never been. You know, it's almost yeah. I've not been racist to you, yeah. have I? No, you haven't. <laughs> but however, but then that wouldn't happen because then we wouldn't be speaking. Got the line, yeah. You know, w- w- you know what we're saying is is that the system itself is racist. Yeah. The way in which it deals with the black community, whether you are a victim or whether you're being held accountable for your behaviour. Mm. Um, so it, it, that that's not it. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a lot of explaining mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that it got through to everybody mm-hmm. um, but what that did lead me on to was the next part of my career because mm-hmm. out of the McPherson inquiry we developed the community safety unit so that were initially were about combating hate crime Okay. Um, but then it expanded to look at issues around domestic violence, it expanded to look at homophobic crime, mm-hmm. so it, you know, it became a bigger umbrella, umbrella yeah. 
than that. And where it led me to then was to um, go and work for the Racial and Violent Crime Task Unit, Mm -hmm. Task Force, that was based at Scotland Yard, led by um, uh, the then Deputy Assistant Commissioner John Grieve, who's Mm -hmm. now Professor John Grieve at uh, Portsmouth University. Um, And he was someone who had been involved in the review of the investigation into the death of Stephen Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the, the people that I really had confidence in that as a white police officer actually got it yeah, mm-hmm. and understood, you know, part of his work was around creating the independent advisory group, which had people, um, different people from the community um, and who were what they call critical friends. Yeah. Who would come in and no holds barred, tell them it. So, yeah, you so got this wrong, you got that wrong. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they were, they were, they were critical friends. You know, mm. there were people like, oh gosh, I've forgotten his name now. Um, he's now the Bishop of Canterbury, Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, um, Bishop John. Well. Yeah, I know you're talking. Yeah, I was about to say the white guy, but <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> yeah, no, 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 yeah, but no, not not Carey. Yeah. Um, John Sentamu. Yeah. Okay, no, it's not. Yeah, so John Sentamu. Um, he was part of that group. Yeah. Um, there were lots of different people that were key figures in the black community mm. that formed the independent advisory group. Okay, uh, and they were no holds barred, and they yeah. told so it like it, it was from the community perspective. Yeah. Um, and again, there was still some criticism from the black community about, yeah. well, if you're going there, you know, are you really going to criticise them? Yeah. They did. They were no holds barred. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I guess that's exactly what you needed to get to get the right result. But it was it was what was needed. Mm. They you know they were there to look through the processes, the practices, mm-hmm. the policy, and say to the Met and analyze it accordingly. Th- this this is not so what I, should be. I wanted to ask as well because you you just mentioned them the um, the the racial racial and violent crime directorate. Is was that like a forerunner to? Operation Trident, or is that something completely different? No, they were, they were completely separate. Okay. So Operation Trident was dealing with gun crime specifically. Yeah. And, and, and then it morphed into kind of, you know, looking at black-on-black crime in the community. Yeah. The Racial and Violent Crime Task Force was really about trying to stay true to the recommendations from the McPherson the Inquiry. Okay. It was about, from the top down, like, w- what's happening? Why is, you know, why is this? What do we need to change yeah, yeah. at a strategic level? Level, okay, got you. Um, so that was where that group were. But they were involved still in, um, as kind of independent observers in a number of different, different cases, things. like Ricky Real, for example. Um, Ricky Real speaking. was the young... Um, the Asian young man who died in suspicious circumstances, he drowned in the Thames. You know, there are are other different things where, um, you know, and they were external, you know, in in West Mercia and in Liverpool and Manchester. So they were, that's what the Racial Violent Crimes Task Force was about. It's about not just the Met. Then there was a need to actually go out around the the country country. because remember, it wasn't all about London. Yeah, of course. It was about other parts of, of the course. country um, and in terms of 
so I, I don't know if you know too much about it or well, I'm sure you do um, just to get your perspective because um, I, I thought this was to do with Trident which is what's prompted this question but um, I've been listening to a lot there's, there's kind of a debate going on now um, I'm sure it's probably not new but almost the about the racialization of crime when it came to Operation Trident, so this idea that there's black-on-black crime right. and this kind of idea of black-on-black crime. Um, and, you know, there's an argument... I think there was there was certainly a big argument at the time that it does need, there does need to be a focus on, quote-unquote, black-on-black crime. And now the argument is, why has it, why has it been racialised to black-on-black? At the end of the day, people within the same community tend to commit crimes to and amongst each other um, and in racialising it it's almost that that makes it even that exacerbates the issue because you're kind of turning it into a black thing when really it's a poverty thing um, so for example up in Glasgow I think that's, that's, that's had one of the highest rates of, of um, stabbings um, across Europe um, that's not called white on white crime it's just crime mm. and you know it, this idea of Operation Trident focusing on the black community and black on black crime. Do you think kind of the labelling it of it as black on black crime has done more harm than good or do you think it was necessary? I just want to get your general perspective yeah. on the racialisation. I mean, and, and I can give from a, a kind of only from a personal perspective yeah, 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 as opposed yeah. to uh, as a, uh, a, yeah. a, a professional one having not worked on Operation Trident. Yeah, uh, I think it, there is something about when we label it as such, black on black crime, then it actually says it's about those people over there. So yeah. actually, don't, we don't actually need to worry about that. Yeah. That they're going to exterminate themselves. Yeah, mm. almost. Yeah. So you know, but it also helps perpetuate this this notion that black people are inherently violent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Kind of following on from that, and actually, it was my housemate that really wanted me to ask this question. Kind of about cultural relativism and its place in creating policies and I know that you well I read that you worked a lot on um, sexual violence cases and domestic violence yeah. cases mm. and like honour killing cases mm-hmm. and I wondered how much that idea of oh this is what these communities do played into like creating policies around it or how you kind of tackled that so it's a massive issue yeah mm. I mean I think there's a starting point in everything mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you kind of mentioned things like honour crimes and, mm-hmm. and, f- and female genital mutilation. I know you spoke to Comfort, Comfort yeah. so I won't even try to <laughs> touch on her <laughs> expertise. Yeah. She is, she is yeah. amazing. Um, when it comes to stuff around honour-based violence, forced marriage in particular, which is the area that I got involved in, um, initially that's what we were seeing from what was being reported or what we were discovering. Um, but what was to me was really important that actually that we don't label it as those people over there who do that in their communities all that time because it, it would colour a police officer's judgment for want of a better phrase. Mm. So for example, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you if you you know, I'd often think about, you know, for example, missing persons. Mm. So missing persons, lots and lots of people go missing in the capital all the time. Mm. Um what I also wanted to take care was that police officers, when we were talking to them about this subject, was they didn't think that every time you went to an Asian police uh, household and uh, they said, so-and-so's, you know, our daughter's missing, that is because they're being forced into a marriage. Mm, mm, it might mm. be that just hanging out with their mates and forgotten mm, the time yeah. and actually they're, they're, they're late home like any other 
teenager. It's not that they've been whisked off on a plane to yeah, Jalalabad and not married off to their second cousin. Yeah, yeah. So it's trying to actually ensure that in raising the issues, which hadn't been raised before in those particular areas, it was about also saying, but also don't generalise and don't yeah. stereotype. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. That's the danger. Yeah. Um, and that leaves people at risk. So, it, you know... Know that this happens, but don't stereotype the the community. The, almost, the yeah. community by you know every Asian person that you come to, it's if their kids nice. gone missing, it because of yeah. they've been forced into marriage or yeah. they're subject to an honour crime. And 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 building on that, um, I gather from from doing a lot of that work in terms of, I, I'd like to define it under the umbrella of violence against women. Mm-hmm. Um, that gave you the opportunity to speak at the UN um, a couple of times. Um, what was it like, like your, fr- from all that you said, you, you know, you're the child of immigrant parents from Jamaica, um, you've gone into the police force, you're, you're, the, you're the black girl from Hackney, from, mm-hmm. from London. What's it now like elevating and, and people looking at you as the subject expert? In, I mean, for the world, really, the United Nations is it's an international organization. They're the people who make, who set the policy for the world. What was it like, kind of coming from that background, building up your experience, and now being the specialist, the expert? Um, I'm not gonna lie. I just thought it was doing my job yeah. because yeah. that's what I do every day, and yeah. it and it was something that I was passionate about. Yeah. So it wasn't difficult to share my passion mm. with other people regardless of the platform mm. whether I was speaking to five people in a room or if I was speaking at the United Nations in Geneva mm. it didn't really make a difference you, but yeah. you know when I reflect now yeah, it was something it, yeah. quite extraordinary when yeah, I reflect now when least. I reflect now <laughs> extra but at the time it was kind of oh you know yeah, I'm yeah, going to go I'm going to speak to people yeah. about something I'm really passionate about um, we're going to have a dialogue. Um, you know, that particular piece of work I did was with, you know, a really great team. And we wanted to present our work around and, and look at the wider context of honour-based violence and honour crimes and looking at it as a modern form of slavery. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that that was what we presented to, to the convention. Yeah. Um, about you know our thoughts about what how we saw it and therefore engaging more people um not just in the country but you know globally around this issue mm-hmm. which you know t- to some extent had been hidden yeah, yeah certainly definitely. from from a, a british policing perspective yeah. uh, that we hadn't really pulled that information yeah. out of the general stuff that we that we were working on around violence against women. Mm. Yes, we knew that there was sexual violence, there was rape and there was sexual assault. Yes, we knew that there were domestic violence and some of them led to homicide. But actually to drill down into that information and kind of see out, the wood yeah. for the trees thing yeah, about yeah. what was happening and the fact that we were actually, perhaps we needed to change the way that we actually approach these types of investigation so that was yeah quite important and that's where we were coming from is about sharing our knowledge sharing our experience working mm. with international colleagues because these things were had international boundaries yeah, you know that's yeah, why yeah. one the one of the important partnerships that we formed was with the foreign and commonwealth office mm-hmm. um and other ngos you know across europe and across the world was about 
this work, this being a global problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember speaking to colleagues in America about it and yeah. t- talking about honor-based violence, honor killings, and they said, oh, no, we don't have those. We don't have those. And then I kind of delved through a load of stuff yeah. and found, you know, it, yeah. these incidents around the country. Um, so for me, speaking at Platform Site, the UN was about, is about sharing that knowledge and mm. actually finding out what other people's experiences were and, and maybe they had a, a method of extrapolating this information and, you know, forming strategies around helping uh, people in, involved in these types of cases uh, that we didn't have and vice versa. Mm. So it really was about, you know, starting that kind of conversation. Yeah. And and how did that, this, so I understand you got an MBE, how did that come about? How did this all culminate into getting an MBE? What, what was that like? Um, <laughs> really quite strange, actually. <laughs> I had no idea it was coming. Yeah. Absolutely no idea. Um, the year before, I'd been really um, humbled to be given um, an award for victim care mm-hmm. um, and by Baroness Scotland again uh, mm-hmm. you know working with a really amazing woman, woman in yeah. the seat of power of government yeah. so for me that was amazing um, and that was great and that was yeah. fantastic and I carried on trundling along yeah. and you know I'll kind of quickly share with you um, I literally got an envelope in my desk on my desk same from St James's Palace. Yeah. But because we deal with different, we were dealing with different bodies at strategic government yeah. level, it kind of... It just seemed like... Yeah, I saw yeah. I'll open that later on. Um, <laughs> and sat in the corner, opened it up, and opened up this letter, and read the contents and kind of looked up, and I was looking around at my colleagues <laughs> in the office, trying to think, oh, this is someone pranking yeah. me. It's Actually, a com- Comfort said that when she got the call three times from Buckingham Palace and she kept dropping the phone in them yeah because the same thing she thought was a wind up like yeah. she just didn't believe it so. I absolutely thought it was a wind up yeah. so I took the letter because no one was looking at me no one was bursting out laughing yeah, so I thought yeah, yeah. Oh, okay then so <laughs> I went along the corridor and I found a empty office and I yeah. rang the number on the end and a very posh lady said um, yes Miss Roden if you could send your response as soon as possible because we're trying to organise the investiture yeah. ceremonies and I was kind of Okay. <laughs> Put the phone down. Well, I'm playing on the desk. Right, okay. And I kind of got a, okay, this is happening. This is happening type of thing. Yeah. And in the letter, it says you can't tell anyone. So you get notified like three months okay. in advance. But you can't tell anyone because at that point, you're still going through the process of yeah. different yeah. committees and what have right. you. And then the Queen has to sign it off and what have you. Um, so I kind of had to keep it to myself for like three months. Didn't tell anyone? No one crazy and then on new year's eve we had a family party and i knew that the list was coming out that night so i sort of said oh um why don't we go and get all the newspapers and yeah. see what it says about the new year celebrations yeah. and tra la la and um i think my cousins went out and i said oh all these newspapers and i sat down and i said um i've got something to tell you and my cousin who's like she's like Three months, three months between us, we've born yeah. in the same year. So she was all, oh my God, what's happening? Are you all right? Are you, are you not well? Are you moving away? Like, no, 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 nothing like that. And I said, go to this page, read the list. Yeah. And then they read the list and it's ah, loads of yeah. crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was amazing, you know. I, and, you know, it 
made me kind of sit down in a quiet moment and reflect. Mm. I am the child of two immigrants who came here wanting a better life for their children. Mm. And this weird thing had happened. Mm. And it was, you know, to me, that was what they sacrificed yeah, and put yeah, up with for this to happen. Yeah. You know, the, I think the, my only sadness is that my dad wasn't there to share it because my dad oh, okay. had passed away while oh, I was at training school. That. So, um, but, you know, it was just for my mum who struggled yeah. and, you know, as I said at the beginning, I was a bit of a handful when I was at school. Yeah. <laughs> so to get to that point was really something else. And for me, it was a tribute to her and everything yeah. that she had done sacrifice and sacrificed yeah. for not just me, but for all of my siblings, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, it, it was a recognition of what she'd done, the sacrifice mm. that she'd made and that my dad had made. So, mm. you know, it was, it was really quite amazing. It was, it was quite surreal going to work the next day because I yeah, was actually yeah. working on New Year's Day and by that time, it it it's, it's come out yeah. then. And and to to be fair, there were loads of people who were just incredibly supportive. Yeah. And some of the kind of personal notes and cards mm. from senior officers, so like really really senior in the organisation, yeah. that had taken the time, time in the day to write handwritten yeah. notes to me, um, and just be supportive and you know one one of the I guess you know one of the um, most supportive things I received was actually from um, the former police commissioner Ian Blair okay oh, wow. actually took the time to ring me on my oh, personal wow. mobile and say congratulations That's crazy which was crazy, yeah, yeah that's absolutely the top, that's crazy. The top, top dog right? Like yeah. it was crazy, yeah. Um, um, and so for me, the culmination of everything mm. was that moment. But you know, come sort of like January the third, when all the hoo ha had died down, it's like nose back to the yeah. grindstone. Yeah, We've got to stuff to do. Mm. There's people out there, yeah. you know. All of that stuff is nice, but yeah. actually. It's the day-to-day work bit, that yeah. continues. The grind's got to keep going yeah, because the there are people stop. out there who need help. So, um, you know, it was important to me to keep that going. But, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing honour. You know, yeah. I'm not going to lie. It was, um, it was amazing. And, yeah. and the investiture was surreal. Mm. And, um, you know, it was. It was kind of sitting there later on at 12 o'clock at night mm. when I'd got back home and I'm sitting at my mum's house mm. in my pyjamas and I've got my MBE pinned yeah. to my pyjamas. <laughs> and I think, oh, yeah, that happened. It's crazy. That it's happened. Crazy. That happened today. Yeah. yeah, that was real. So, yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's in pride of place in my underwear drawer at home. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, it was an incredible honour and mm. an incredible honour, incredible recognition of the work, a recognition of what my mother had sacrificed. It was incredible recognition of all those really brave victims that were survivors and all those victims that hadn't survived. Mm. It was a recognition that this is real and everything that you've gone through, we're, we're going to keep yeah, on at this now. Fantastic. Um, and so what then, 
made you retire from the police force? Obviously, now you're a netball coach for England, something completely different. Why did <laughs> yeah. you retire? How did you end up transitioning into that? Um, well, I'd, I'd served my last four years. I'd, I'd done a, a fairly relaxed posting. I worked on Operation Sapphire, which is investigating rape and serious sexual assault. And and, and that would kind of yeah, yeah. yeah just a light <laughs> kind of thing. But it was it, it was about it was almost going back to the beginning of my career because mm. that's where my passion was, mm. and um, you know a real intense environment. And you know everyone's talked about and had the the, the, the court public opinion about the way that rape and sexual assault oh, yes, it's, it's has been, a has big been investigated recently, yeah. and, and and very much so. And what I would say is. The women and men who work on uh, on the serious crime directory investigating these types of crimes are some of the most dedicated that I've worked with in my whole service. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's hard work. Mm. It's hard work. It's not easy. There's a reason why there's only certain types of people that work in there. Mm. It's hard work. It's And it sounds like it's really heavy like emotionally heavy yeah. like it's, it's tasking it's not just the work where it's difficult between nine to five yeah but you know these things live with you you know if you if, if, if you're dealing with someone who's been raped or if you're dealing with someone who's who's been violently assaulted or whatever on a daily basis i say someone you're dealing with dozens of people on a daily basis this is stuff that that yeah it, do, it doesn't leave you when you go home that day like it it, it sits within your your spirit, your psyche. So, mm. yes, this absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think that's... Yes, police officers are human. They get things wrong. And yeah. absolutely, they, you know, when something is wrong, we need to be held accountable for. But as you say, it is that... It's that emotional, that psychological mm. impact that people might not take understand that happens. Yeah. That you... Well, certainly I can speak from personal experience, that you view people, and I'd say, I say people, I mean men, yeah, differently. Differently, yeah, I can imagine. You do view them differently for a while. And I always talked about when I left the police service, it was like, it, it, we always talk about it being a family, mm. and suddenly you have to leave the family and go yeah. out on your own, and it feels Just quite like strange yeah. to not have that whole thing around you. And... Um, you know, leaving such an intense area of work like Operation Sapphire um, was, was significant. It was a big wrench, you know. I was very emotional the day that I finally kind of handed over my warrant card yeah. and walked out the door and that was it. Yeah. Um, but it is yeah, really you've intense also work. given 30-something yeah. years of your life towards it. It's, it's, it's a lot. But, it, you know, Sapphire was very, very intense and... Yeah physically as well as emotionally yeah. tiring and I'd got to a point where I was able to retire yeah. because of the way that it works and so I was able to retire and I it was actually the death of a colleague a couple of years previously um, a black woman oh. um, who had passed away and been at a funeral and thinking I don't want to go down like this yeah, yeah you know i love the job and i did you know i'm not i loved yeah. the job i loved my career 
but I knew that I needed to. There was life outside the yeah. mayor. I acknowledged that. And one of the things that I'd done was, when, since I was a kid, actually, since I was seven years old, my mum had got me into netball yeah. because that was the main sport that women yeah. played in the Caribbean. And she'd got me into netball, and I played, and I'd umpired, and I'd coaching. And I, quickly, what was your position? I was a defender, goal defence. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the significance of that way. Yeah. Um... <laughs> and so it was always it was always there in the background. Yeah. It was always kind of keeping me sane. It was always that yeah, part of yeah. my life. And so and I'd got qualified as a coach while I was in the Met as well, which was quite a lot to juggle. Um, but I kind of. You know, once I left the Met and I purposely had a break and I went straight off to the place where I feel my most comfortable. I went to Jamaica. I went for um, two or three months and I chilled out. And I came back and um, I was just helping out casual coaching. You know, people Mm. wanted a coach to cover a session because they were away or what have you um, and started doing that. And then the opportunity came to work for England Netball, mm. which is a national governing body. And, yeah, so that was my kind of new path. So, sorry, um, just I did my first interview in 30-odd years, job interview. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, yeah. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great. I obviously got the job, and yeah. I've been working there for a couple of years now. Um, so I do want to ask you some questions about netball. But, yeah, sure. Um, you did, you did, just to take it back, you just you did mention just in passing that you went back to where feels like home or most comfortable, which is Jamaica. Um, I just wanted to ask about that. It's something you said in passing, but I guess it's yeah. quite a significant thing. You've, from what I understand, you were born in London, you've lived in London your whole life. Um, why is it that despite all of that, Jamaica's still where you feel most comfortable? Jamaica's still where you call home? Yeah. It, I just, it had always been part of my life. There was mm. never a point where my parents kind of said, don't, don't think about that, don't worry about yeah. it. Like, when we were young, my parents, you know, they kind of alternate because they couldn't afford to go as a whole family. Mm. I would go with my dad or my mm. two sisters would go with my mum. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. It's from kids... We'd always gone back. So there was always that connection there. And I think I kind of lost my way a little bit in my sort of late teens, early 20s, you know, when I kind of joined the Magaluf set type of thing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But then there came a time when actually, you know, I wanted to be back there. I wanted to... I was old enough to appreciate then, I think, Mm. more than anything else. You know, when you're 10 or 12, when you go to Jamaica and you're both your parents come from a rural area there's it's not, not the a lot of exciting to do you know you know you you know you they kind of hop back to an older style of yeah, parenting then. yeah um so you don't necessarily have the fondest memory yeah. you can't run around and do what you want to do but mm-hmm. i understand that now um but as i got older i actually had an appreci- appreciation i think particularly after my dad passed i really wanted to connect yeah, yeah, yeah with my family yeah um in a real way and so that began a kind of every year going back yeah once mm-hmm. sometimes twice a year yeah. and connecting and getting comfortable and and it was always part of it yeah and um you know even when I was in the Met I'd go back every year yeah yeah every year people say why do you want to go to Jamaica <laughs> you know and, and particularly kind of non 
Caribbean, yeah, non-black yeah, black people, colleagues. Yeah. Why do you want to go there? Or we, you know, it's very violent. It's you know, yeah, it's a, just it, the it negative this whole kind of yeah. notion of black people being violent yeah, all the time. Yeah. And actually, my my <laughs> experience nothing was, else that exactly. black people do. But yeah, and yeah. you know, it was it was, you know, it, for me, it was important to connect back and know that actually this is where I come from. This mm. is kind of, you know, my birth here in England was. Uh, uh, an accident, if you yeah, like, yeah. Um, because my parents, like everybody else, wanted to come here and make a life and then go back. Yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah, but it so easily could have been me being born there, being born yeah. born there, and so that's where I feel the most comfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I you know I I love my life here. Yeah, but I feel most comfortable there, and yeah. there's something about being in a country where actually. You look like everybody well, you're else. You're the norm, yeah. That's something I've spoken to. Uh, maybe two, three of my interviews have said exactly the same thing. It's definitely something that I can, I can relate to as well in terms of when when you go back home, whether that's Africa or the Caribbean. All of a sudden, you go from not being the norm to being the norm again, and it's almost just just that ability to blend in and not standing out or not looking or not not your blackness not meaning anything because that's what's yeah. normal. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I guess I'm conscious of time, but I, mm. I got two I got two questions that yeah, I'd like sure. to kind of ask back to back. Um, one is netball as a sport. It's funny. I was, again, I was talking to Eva and Salome about it recently, and Salome plays netball, and I was saying how net. I've never. I've ne- my sister plays netball, but I've never seen a game of netball in my life. Um, the Olympics was the first time. That I even saw a bit of netball. Well, I still the don't understand games, the game. So the Commonwealth Games, the recent Commonwealth Games, was first time when I saw um, any netball. Like, what do you think? How do you feel about that? And where would you like the future of netball to go? And then the other question, if you could sort of tie it hand in hand, is also just what's next for you as an individual. So you've you finished your 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 phase of life as a as a. Um, as a um, police officer and a lot of the work you've done around um, violence against women and so on and so forth and you've, you're moving into this new space um, as you move into this new space kind of what's the goal what's what's next for you mm. um, what, what I find really exciting about my role at England Netball is uh, I am a, a netball development community coach mm. so my role is about going out and developing netball programs at grassroots level mm. Um, some of the key areas I work on is the Back to Netball programme, which is about getting women back and active into netball. Mm. So we know that women are often give up activity in sport, in particular for a number of different reasons. There's a big dropout in terms from about 14 to 19-year-old mm. age group in terms of women Playing not sport, continuing yeah. sport and, and, and netball in particular, specifically. So it's about trying to attract those women, those young women back into sports, mm-hmm. about, uh, and not necessarily about sports, but about being active. Because sometimes the, the word sport yeah, actually terrifies people. Yeah. It's like, you know, it, 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 it evokes Im- images of like tight lycra and, yeah. you know, having to look a certain way yeah, and be a certain way. And actually, yeah. we want to encourage women and girls to be active regardless of, of what, what you look like. Doing, and yeah. that's why, you know, campaigns like This Girl Can was so important mm. yeah. in terms of empowering women to feel that 
I can go out and I can be active and I can be sporty mm. and, you know, not be viewed anything else but a good thing. Mm. So we're trying to engage women on that level. So we know women, girls drop out because, you know, it's just not cool. Yeah. We know we get feedback from the girls. You know, it's a, you know I don't want to be sweaty. I don't want to ruin my makeup. Yeah. Boys don't like girls who play sport. Yeah, trying to get over those yeah. things as well work, as <laughs> I have a work colleague that said that like, she absolutely loves sport but she gets chastised for apparently only liking sport because it gets her closer to guys and she's like that's <laughs> definitely not why she likes yeah. sport yeah, <laughs> yeah. As well. absolutely and for women who may have given up the game for a number of different reasons yeah. most women in this country will have played netball at well, school and, and that's kind of where I was going to earlier in terms of most women have played netball netball's probably the most common sport for women but it's not a part of the it's not part of the establishment of, of sporting so I've never again I've never seen netball until the recent Commonwealth Games yeah um, it's kind of just stuff I can say from a guy's perspective just stuff that women do that we never see we never hear about it's, a light's never shone on it there's you know until recently I didn't even realize they were kind of professional netball players yeah. um you know, I was kind of surprised to see them at the Commonwealth thinking, because I, I was thinking in my head, but, you know, aside from the Commonwealth, what what else is there in terms of, you know, is, 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 there, is there money in this sport? Is it something that someone can realistically say, this is what I want my career to be and so on and so forth? I guess, one, how do you feel about that? And two, how, how, how do you f- hope it may move on? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the Commonwealth Games, your experience is yeah. unlike a yeah. lot of people in this country that their perception in netball was it's at school, you know, it was cold, outdoor, horrible plimsolls, <laughs> yeah. and and not really athletic. What you have now are athletes. Yeah, yeah. Um, these are, and anyone who watched, particularly the final, anyone who mm. watched those games will know that those were athletes, athletes on the court. Yeah. Um, that those women, those athletes work hard Mm -hmm. to get their bodies their minds right in order to be able to compete at the highest level like any other athlete athlete, um the interesting thing is although it might not appear it's it's visible over a million women and girls play netball in this country every weekend Mm. more we've actually surpassed rugby yeah yeah in terms yeah. of at a grassroots the level. Playing, yeah. So there's a huge amount of women and yeah. girls that actually play netball and now men are becoming more involved. There are netball. there's a the, yeah, there's an England netball men's team. So um yeah. really random. In my primary school, I don't know why. Mind. I think like I don't know if like the football league had ended or something had happened, so the boys couldn't play football or something, and so a few boys joined the netball team in like so year six. Yeah. And we're all like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <It's cool>. So <laughs> netball's played by boys and girls in this yeah. country up until year six, mm-hmm. which is why you saw okay. it, boys yeah. playing it as well. Once it goes to secondary school, of course, then they get moved. Yeah, you know, move on, and, and and football becomes the main. It's the the main sport. In places like Australia and New Zealand, that's a very different. Men and women and men play netball all the way through school, through high school, university, mm-hmm. college. There are professional men's leagues. It's just that they have parity. Um, As you've mentioned, in Australia and New Zealand, um, you can play netball professionally Mm -hmm. and get paid a a decent wage Mm -hmm. for it. In in Australia in particular, netball players are superstars. So some of our key players 
um, from England, for example, playing Australia, the likes of Jeeva Mentor, who was the tall goalkeeper, mm. um, Serena Guthrie, Joe Hart and Helen Housby. Um, all of these women are professional athletes and are superstars out in Australia. Yeah. But probably if you hadn't seen them at the Commonwealth Games, you wouldn't have recognised them if you went Never. past the street. You know, I think that's going to be a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. Um, I think what's really... And for me, it's kind of tying my old life with my, my yeah. old career, with my yeah. new career. Is It's important to see women in who are athletic, who are positive uh, images of leadership, of strength, of power. All of those things are really important to see so that young women, young girls can say, um, I want to be an England netball athlete when I mm. grow up. Um, that it's possible to achieve at the very, very highest levels. Mm. So it's, it's, for us, it's a real watershed moment yeah. um, in terms of that. Um, and kind of the next big thing that you were talking about, the next big thing is this time next year, the Netball World Cup will be happening in Liverpool. So oh, we're okay. hosting the home games. So 16 of the best countries in the world will be coming, gathering in Liverpool over a two-week period to find it out to become world champions, mm. which are currently Australia. And apart from a couple of times, Australia have been at the top yeah. for a very long time. Lead, However, yeah. England have now, as you've seen from the final, up, have now yeah. upset the apple cart. Yeah. Not only have we gone on to win gold, we've now shifted in terms of the world positioning. And where for a long time we were number three, we've now been made number two. Okay. Um, displacing New Zealand, who were world number two so, for a very long time, who came away from the Commonwealth, shockingly, without a medal. Yeah. Um, so lots of things are turning. The, the, the environment's shifting. Um, there's lots of work going on in the background about who's getting involved. You know, big promoters like Barry Hearn are putting mm. on the Fast Five competition which is a faster version of the game with okay. five players on the court and lots of the kind of swappings, a kind of a, a similar kind of thing to basketball. Yeah. It's about speeding it up, make it more entertainment. Yeah. Barry Hearn's on board. He hosted the first Fast Fives competition um, last year at the O2. This year it's going to come back to the home of netball um, at Copper Box Arena. Mm -hmm. um, what's also happening is now, which is really exciting, it's been announced in the last couple of weeks, and um, we have the Super League, which is um, 10 teams in the Super League around the country, and for the first time, London's actually going to have its own franchise Okay. in London. Um, CEO, uh, former England player, black woman, Natalie C Seaton. Okay. She's the CEO and former England captain. Again, black woman, Amanda no Newton is the new head coach. What's really exciting about that Natural is Amanda. going to be that for the first time, and I think it's one of the things that, you know, I I'm, I'm really encouraged by is that young athletes and particularly young black women in London, young black girls who play netball who perhaps it's been beyond their reach because mm. there's a whole load of things that need to ducks need to be in a row mm -hmm. to be able to yeah. play at that athlete at that level, that level yeah. now they're going to have that a franchise in yeah. london because previously the closest franchises have been in hertfordshire hertfordshire mavericks oh, yeah. or in surrey storm in guildford yeah, which yeah. if you're a kid in hackney and you're one of four kids and mum's got to make the decision between you and, doing yeah. the weekly shopping or paying for you to go out to hertfordshire yeah. that wasn't a possibility and that's what's so exciting about um london pulse which is the new franchise yeah 
is that we're going to see, and I know I'm really excited by the fact that there's some really amazing talent mm. that they've been nurturing that are going to come on the scene in January when the Super League starts. So I'm make really sure you watch it on Sky Sports 3 in January. So it's on Sky Sports. Uh, All right, cool. And, yes. um, but there's going to be some really exciting new talent going to get yeah. to showcase their talent yeah. in the Super League. And I think that's 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 going to provide a whole load of opportunities yeah, for young women yeah. who couldn't see a way to get on that pathway to, 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 to be a professional yeah. netball player. That's now going to be a reality now. So that's yeah. really, really exciting in the world of netball. And then the big picture is the Netball World Cup le- next year yeah. um, in Liverpool. Um, you know, judging by the ticket sales and the fact that even I, who worked for Ingo Netball last week, still couldn't able to buy any tickets last week because they oh, were all wow. sold out. Oh, wow. So, um, There's a lot of anticipation it, for it, it's, yeah. it's massive, you know. Um, you know, and this is a real opportunity. It's a real showcase. Yeah. And... You know, we're, we're excited by the fact that England have managed to get the gold in the Commonwealth. Yeah. And now and the now next task home. is is come home. <laughs> Netball's coming home. Netball's coming home. <laughs> Which is what everyone was starting to say is Netball's coming home. Yeah. But these amazing athletes, what I love about the optics of the current senior squad is what it looks like mm. right now. It's that it's diverse. There's mm. There are women from a whole load of different backgrounds mm. Um, there um, that you know it makes it possible you can see yourself up there on the screen and I think Mm. for me as a community coach that's what's really important particularly with working young kids is that they can see see themselves up there on the screen and say actually yeah I'd I'd like to do that or I'd like to go to uni and do sports science or or whatever it is and and be you know a physical therapist or or, or a team strength and conditioning coach that actually that's the reality I can do that and yeah. I'm not sure that we like a lot of other sports presented that in the past yeah okay, um, and I think that that's got to be reflected right through the organisation it's yeah. a bit like you know the, the arguments around football yeah around managers how many black managers have we got yeah. in football um, you know how many are at that executive level that board yeah. level the decision, decision makers, makers yeah. where are they and yeah. I, I think we're still searching for that yeah. yeah and you know I'm hoping my sport in particular that that gets accelerated you know and there's lots you know it's a really exciting time to be involved in the sport now yeah. and but it's also when you're coming back to grassroots level it's about getting women who haven't been active to get them active it's about yeah. creating a positive safe fun relaxed environment but they're not thinking about so and so is wearing something, or they look like this. Yeah. Actually, it's for me. It's, it's I for can me, yeah. I can walk through the door, experts, and I'm yeah. going to meet a coach who's welcoming, who's friendly, who's going to appreciate the fact that I haven't been active for forty years, but yeah. it's something that I want to try and yeah. do, and mm-hmm. to be encouraged and be supportive. So th- that's uh, that's kind of my day to day job, yeah. and and as well as working with young kids, um, you know, some of the areas that that I working like Tower Hamlets, Hackney, Camden, Islington are all areas where, you know, if we look at the, the links in terms of health outcomes, yeah. mm-hmm. things like high levels of diabetes, yeah. hypertension, you know, pressure, other yeah. other issues that have a burden on the health service. Yeah. So part of that is about encouraging everybody to come in, get active. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And once you start that spark it, yeah. You know, we want to create with young people. We want to create lifetime habits. Yeah. 
um, you know, what we don't want to do is, is contribute to levels of obesity and yeah. all the rest of it that have an impact on our services. So for me, it's not just the sports you like can hear. It's, it's the whole approach. big thing. But ultimately, it's about getting women back active and feeling yeah. comfortable about it and, you know having that hour for themselves a week when yeah. you're not worried about kids or the dinner or yeah, doing yeah. some more work or, you know, I'm worried Whatever about what I look be, like yeah. or what I wear. Just pitch up, you know. To me, my strapline is always just turn up and join in. That's yeah. it. And the mental health like, aspect of that must be Oh, great. absolutely, like, yeah. The, 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 the links to mental health and that healthy mind, healthy body, yeah. that, that's all part of it as well. So for me, you know... I'm um, just as passionate about my netball as yeah. I am about, you know, violence against women. And um, I'm actually in the process of trying to marry the two, of working with domestic okay. violence organisations and trying to engage women with back in those activities netball, yeah. that when you're fleeing domestic violence and, you know, you've got to look after your kids and, and make it work, yeah. things like being active and having now for yourself go yeah, out the yeah, window. Haven, and yeah. it's about how can we marry the two, two worlds together. together. So that's part of my kind of community work as well is, is bringing that all together and you know working with different communities I've really had the privilege of working with the deaf community recently and okay. it's been really enriching experience and so it's about expanding that like how can I expand that so yeah. that lots of people with different disabilities can actually engage in our activity in our sport as well as you know Everybody. as anybody who's able-bodied yeah. um to be honest, I'd, I'd love to explore it a lot, a lot more, but we, we pretty much got to wrap up now. Um, but the last two questions I, I, I ask all of my guests are, obviously you're speaking to a, a, a audience, an audience of millennials. Um, if you could go back to when you were 25, just picking as a random age for a millennial, but if you could go back to when you were 25, what advice would you give yourself? And then also mm -hmm. after that, um, speaking to millennials, what ad what advice would you give us um, as millennials, kind of as we make our journeys and our paths going forward? Okay. Well, when I was twenty five, I'd been a police officer for three, four years. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things that I think I'd advise myself, looking back now, is travel more mm -hmm. because there's so much out there. It's such an exciting place, the world. So I'll travel with me. I, I definitely, I, I definitely subscribe to the notion that travel broadens the mind. Definitely. Mm. So I would, I would definitely travel more. I would and and take more chances in that travel and not just go to the standard places, but actually expand your mind. Because if mm. one thing the police service gave me was an opportunity to travel, and there's just just some amazing, amazing mm. places out there in the world. So. Yeah, definitely I'd, I'd say to myself, travel more. Yeah. Um, and I'd almost give the same experience, I'd say almost the same advice to millennials now is travel more, see what's out there, just grab every opportunity mm. um, and don't be afraid of getting it wrong. Mm. Don't be afraid of getting wrong because you learn by failure and that's something mm -hmm. I've learned through sport as well mm. is... You learn more by failure but when you, than when you're winning all the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, we don't fail, we learn. Yeah. And then we grow. Yeah. So, for me, it's grabbing those opportunities. And if it doesn't go right the first time, fine. Dust yourself, yourself off, go for it again. the second, a third. Because if you really want it, 
keep going. Mm. You will get it. Mm. Don't be afraid of failure. It's mm. it's an important part of that process of life. Yeah. It's getting it wrong, learning from it, and then taking it to your next experience. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Yvonne. It's 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 been it's been a real pleasure having you here today, hearing your story, hearing about I think um and my, I say this every week and my listeners are probably tired of me saying this every week but it's it's one it's lovely to hear there's a lot of things we hear about there's a lot of um as in as millennials that kind of make up the past that make up the past of black britain for want of a better term so again the mcpherson inquiry is a really good example and it's it's really good to hear from people who were working there at the time um and the impact of that but then also i think it's just it, it's very important i think um Sadly, a lot of what the black community is lacking um, is hope. Um, and I think what's really unfortunate is that there's there's like thousands of role models across the black community doing fantastic things um, that are beacons of hope for young people. Their stories are just never heard, hence the title Hidden Figures. Um, and it's not to say that, yeah, I can Google you and find out stuff about you. I just, just did it to prep for this interview. Um, Obviously, you've got an MBE. These are th- these are ways that, to somewhat, society's acknowledged you. But at the same time, for whatever reason, you kind of slip through the cracks. And I think it's really important for my generation to hear your stories. I think it was very important hearing from you, especially talk about, particularly when you spoke about getting the MBE and that being a credit to what your parents have done. Um, I think often my generation takes for granted the kind of groundwork that went before. Um, from your generation, the kind of things you face, the, 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 you know, even what I'm hearing about the, the hangman with a black face on it and stuff like that. These are experiences that we can't even imagine um, in, in, in our lifetime. Um, and I think there's a tendency for us as millennials to get caught up in the problems and what's not going right for us and wh- how we are being discriminated against and so on and so forth. And not to say that we should ignore those things, but, you know, it's, it's really great to hear from those who've, who, who actually have <laughs> made it to the case where we're not having to deal with what they dealt with um, and that, you know, we've moved on so much. But I think until we have that conversation, sometimes it's easy for us to not appreciate how much we have indeed moved on um, and, and, and how much we are, we're, we're in a better space now. Um, and then also, I just think it's important as well in terms of... When we're, I'm, I'm very kind of black-focused, for want of a better term, but um, when we look at t- trying to solve issues in the community, I think, again, there's a tendency of millennials to kind of look in and amongst each other for the answers forgetting the fact that people have fought this battle for a long time before us they've got a lot of wisdom they've got a lot of um, advice they've got a lot of words um, they've got a lot of experience that we just don't tap into so we're busy saying how do we fix things amongst the black community and the police well let's talk to a police officer who's done it for 30 (laughs) years but of course we don't do that so um Hopefully, hopefully, what 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 kind of comes out of this is is both in terms of young people hearing your story and being inspired by it, but also in terms of as we are thinking about solutions. This is not personally, but I do hope mm. it is the case personally as well. As we are thinking about solutions, we do start to engage more with those who've come with with these hidden figures that have come before us to kind of help come up with more holistic um, solutions rather than kind of all focused on me and my experience in the last 20, 
something or last 30 odd years so yeah thank you very much for coming it's much appreciated um and i look forward to i mean it really sounds like you've impacted thousands maybe not well i mean if you've spoken at the un potentially millions of lives across the world um in the work you've done and i hope that that that's that's even continued in terms of through this podcast um yeah so thank you very much and you're welcome yeah you're welcome all right cheers everyone